Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the TBD Podcast. My name is Heath Monsma. And I'm James Catanzaro. And today we had a very special guest, Mrs. Bullinger, the AP psychology teacher at Pioneer. Um, she was very interesting. She gave us a little bit more of a positive spin on our, um, on our current online learning situation, as well as some very interesting anecdotes that she's had over the years of her teaching. Yeah, um, it was just really fun sitting down with her and honestly pretty refreshing to hear a lot of her perspectives. Um, they gave me a little bit of hope and maybe some new approaches to take uh, for the rest of this online year. I'm not sure how much longer we're going to be online, so um, hearing this definitely helped. All right, without any further ado, here's Miss Bullinger. Hi, Miss Bullinger. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. So uh, the first question that I have for you before we address the elephant in the room, the COVID elephant, um, is t- for you to take me back to a little bit of a happier time uh, when you were in high school here at Pioneer. I know you have a little bit of a family legacy. So if you could just paint me a picture of what Pioneer looked like back then and what your role was in the school. Wow. So um, actually, this is kind of um, I'm, I'm an interesting situation, but like, Uh, My parents actually were the first graduating class to go all the way through Pioneer High School as it is. So they graduated in 1959. Um, They were dating then. So that's especially hilarious. Um, My dad played three sports um, and ended up playing college baseball at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, So when I arrived at Pioneer, I, I knew that there was a lot of tradition, right, that I had some big shoes to fill. Um, from an athletic standpoint, I was also an athlete. Um, and so Pioneer, I was the uh, first set of freshmen to come through Pioneer. We were, you know, we were, we were welcomed um, enthusiastically by the seniors who engaged in a variety of particularly hilarious pranks, um, like F Hall, which is somewhere off of where like the door goes into the, <laughs> into the rooftop. Um, I never, you know, I was wiser than that, but like, uh, it was, it was definitely, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely an interesting situation because half the school was new. The freshmen and the sophomores that arrived that year were, were new. And I think that changed the feel of Pioneer a little bit. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a, there was a lot of school spirit then. Um, there was, a, a, I think, a steep sense of tradition at that point in time in the, in the 90s. Um, my place in the school, uh, I was an athlete. Uh, I was also a musician. So I was part of, of both of those programs. Um, when I uh, arrived freshman year, part of the sort of interesting dynamic with all of that is um, I ended up in my sport, I ended up, uh, you know, making varsity um, and then having, you know, the, the low scoring average on varsity. And so to have a freshman step in and, and do that definitely required me to have a skill set um, where I was, you know, managing, ma- managing how I projected myself uh, on the team. Um, because I think there was, it was, it was a, you know, there, there were some freshmen that came in. I had a, a really talented graduating class. The swim team was just ridiculously talented at that point in time. So there were a lot of freshmen, um, that I think came in and immediately started, um, making a difference in their different sectors of, of pioneer. Um, and, and we were, I think we were proud to contribute. Um, if I look at where my graduating class is right now, um, there's just, tremendous participation, tremendous contribution. Um, Brian Johnson's the president of the school board for the Ann Arbor Public Schools. He was a 1993 graduate. Uh, Sean Dobbins is um, doing great things in, uh, in, the, in the jazz 
uh, in the jazz music world. Um, you know, so there are a lot of people that are that continue that tradition and are making a difference into in, in their various sectors. Um, Pioneer, however, at the same time, I would say was a lot more gritty. Um, you know, when I look at teachers saying, you know, certain things, you know, new teachers to Pioneer concerned about, um, I don't know how blunt I can be, but concerned about, you know, some of the discipline in the hallway or whatever. Um, the Pioneer I went to was, was you know, we, we had a lot of things going on. And um, some of the, you know, I, I think we haven't had a fight at Pioneer, the likes of which I witnessed when I went to school. Um, I remember there was a time where at football games, we had to sit in the stands in the student section. Um, we had two cops at the bottom and two cops at the top. And you kind of had to do this like nod thing um, if you needed to go use the restroom at, at the football game. Um, if you were, you know, we, we had a principal come in um, that was brought in essentially to, to deal with some of the issues that we were facing. Um, and, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, we had some things happening off campus at parties where uh, things escalated and there was talk of re retribution, right? So I remember freshman, I believe it was freshman year, um, as part of the band program, you know, we had to do the whole marching thing. And um, I think there might've been five people in the stands. Everybody was afraid to come to the game because they were afraid that somebody was gonna get shot. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a very palpable reality for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember one fight in the stands that the police actually had to break up. And, um, you know, so the pioneer that, that I know now is way more chill um, than, than it used to be. And, and that's always been a, a really interesting point of conversation um, for me. Growing up in the Bryant-Pattengill neighborhood, um, you know, there was this whole discussion. There was a, a lawsuit. And, um, you know, at that point, we were really struggling with school segregation, um, where if you look at the, the history of the city and the things that were going on with uh, real estate, and real estate laws and, and what have you, um, the schools were very demographically segregated. And so there was a, a movement to, um, you know, I was young, so there was a movement to kind of follow, I think, what Shaker Heights was doing, right, and, and integrate the schools in Ann Arbor. Um, and that became a really powerful lesson in uh, socioeconomic conversation because, um, you know, the original school that was supposed to bear, uh, one of the original schools that was going to be paired with, with Bryant was Burns Park. Um, and everybody kind of got into a fight over who was going to have their school closed. And, and um, we were in sixth grade, fifth and sixth grade at the time. And so it was then our graduating class that moved through that whole process and ended up at Pioneer. And so it, I think it was well in our minds, um, Pioneer, the high school students at the time, the conversations that were uh, taking place around the city. And, um, you know, those, those were conversations that, um, you know, shaped our, shaped our thought process at school. Um, and, and my graduating class ultimately has a lot of people that are committed to uh, social justice and activism, um, leaning into the conversations that are important. And so, um, you know, we definitely took our place in those conversations while we were in high school. Um, and then we're motivated to, to make a difference and make a change. And, and just going back to sports for a moment, um, you know, I knew as a female athlete that 
you know, I had opportunities that my grandmother and mother didn't have. Um, but when I got to the University of Michigan, it, I, again, I knew that, you know, I was the, the tail end of Title IX, right? And that um, there were women that came before me that made a difference. What I didn't really wrap my mind around is I was part of like that first group of, um, of, of women at the University of Michigan that actually like received the same letter jacket as the male athletes. Um, and so if I look at the female athletes at the time at Pioneer, the number of swimmers that swam division one in college, the number of swimmers that, um, were all state, all America. Um, I think that there was a large cohort of female athletes in my graduating class that, you know, it wasn't as cool to be a female athlete as it is right now. It was, you didn't have as much social currency. Um, you definitely had to, um, you definitely had to like, um, kind of, you know, there, there were certain, um, realities that surrounded that, that were, that were difficult, right? Um, people questioned your identity in a variety of ways. And, you know, people sometimes were insecure about it to be around you. Um, and it's really been inspiring to see now coming back to Pioneer, how it's different. Um, female athletes, male athletes, you know, are, sort of on this equal field together and, and you all go and you support each other's events um, in ways that I think are, are truly awesome. You lift each other up, having a female kicker on the football team. It's just like, cool, man. You know, um, I'm sure it's not completely flawless, but it is one of the most inspiring differences that, that I've seen, you know, just from a deeply personal standpoint. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And I kind of have noticed that a lot of students our age don't really acknowledge how far we've come since like you've been in high school since that time. Um, people are always kind of looking to see what we can do next. And while I totally agree with that, um, I think we should kind of take a step back and recognize, well, a lot of things have changed since 20 years ago in high school. We've really come a long way. So it's um, actually really good to hear you talk about those stories from back then and then talk about right now and how kids, you know, go to each other's games and we're all supporting of each other. Um, I really think more high schoolers our age should be aware of that. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, like we got Saturday attention for forgetting a pencil. <laughs> so, you know, like um, the, there are some things that I think I, I'm, you know, when I hear like, you know, certain certain forms of complaining I'm like dude you don't even you guys don't even know you know and so um but I would say just to quickly respond to to your um your thought process there is like sometimes you don't know what what you have until you have a comparative reference point and I think the really hard thing about being in high school is you haven't had life in general just because of the age that you're at hasn't really afforded you those yet and so you have nothing to compare it to. And so it's, it's a little bit harder to see outside your own frame of reference. That's just like basic brain science, right? Yeah, definitely. So now we kind of want to transition to your years after high school. So if you want to talk a little bit about um, where you went to college, what you did, and if any certain experiences in college um, led you to become a teacher, or um, if not, and you found that a little bit later, just uh, tell us about those years. So I went to college, you know, as an athlete, I went to U of M right after my senior year. Um, you know, athletics has always been a huge part of my family existence. And it was kind of like the expectations. I, I was raised, 
that, that this is what I was going to do. And I didn't even have a candy bar until I was in sixth grade. I had like really strict diet, right? Um, my cousin was the same way. Um, this was like, this is just what we do, right? It was just an expectation. And of course we had big shoes to fill. Um, and so that's what, um, you know, that's, that's how I went to college. And then um, I went to be a biology major. Like I was going to live outside in a yurt and, you know, study, study wildlife populations. You know, I grew up like fishing and I spent my summers in the middle of the Huron National Forest and I just love being outdoors. So it was like, you know, environmental science. And, and then I kind of, um, you know, I had some trouble with the lab courses aligning with practice. And then I started really looking into like, I didn't want to be in policy in Washington, D.C. I wanted to be, you know, in the field. And then I started looking at, you know, how much money those uh, individuals or scientists at the time made. And I realized that, you know, I probably have to forage for food out of my year studying, you know, and that, you know, I might not get, uh, that might not be the best way to like, you know, raise my own kids if they wanted to have similar opportunities. And I ended up as an athlete, I ended up volunteering um, for a tutoring program. And I ended up back at Pioneer somehow. So it was, I think, the athlete study hall they had at the time. And I would come in, you know, in my in my warm ups or whatever and, and work with um, work with students at Pioneer student athletes that were struggling. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed that mentoring role. And I started, um, you know, my dad was a teacher and a coach, a football coach. So I grew up around that. I just never considered it for myself. Um, and it was that mentoring program at Pioneer where I was like, wow, I could I could, I really enjoy this. I could see myself doing this. And then I sort of, um, I transitioned in, um, the lab courses, like I said, were an issue. I, the psychology teacher at Pioneer was like really strange when I was there. Um, like we, we kind of avoided that class, if you know what I mean. And so I had never taken this on a whim. I took a psych course. It fit my schedule. Uh, it was totally random. And, and then I, I really fell in love with um, with the subject matter. Um, but there was another individual that I think was central to that process. Um, and his name is Greg Harden and Greg Harden, uh, you can look him up on the internet. Um, he was the, uh, individual who worked with a lot of athletes at, at, at Michigan. Um, he was, uh, you know, had a degree in, um, he was a social worker, um, but worked, you know, worked with us. He didn't like being called a sports psychologist. So, you know, he called himself a dream builder, but, um, his mentoring role and, and, um, we had a, we had a program called, um, uh, Empath, which was, uh, Michigan peer advisors creating trust. Um, and, and I worked with that program with Greg Harden. And so things kind of all came together. I, I wanted to be sort of like a Greg Harden, but for high school students. And I wanted to go back in and change some of the things that I didn't I didn't like, you know, I was kind of raised with this ideology that like, don't complain unless you're willing to do something to be part of the solution. You know, that gets us nowhere. And I was an unconventional student. I was in many ways a teacher's worst nightmare. You know, if you couldn't, if you couldn't exhibit to me the why of what I was learning was important, I kind of wrote you off. You know, when am I going to use the quadratic formula ever again? You know, like, why, why does this matter? I hated worksheets. Um, School was an existence and patient suffering. I couldn't sit still. I was really feisty. Um, I was a frequent flyer in the principal's office at Pattonville Elementary, either for fighting and, or, you know, um, I remember my sixth grade a teacher had this assignment that was really kind of 
not particularly inspiring if I have to be professional. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this my own. So, so my partner and I, it was like, you had to do like this communication thing. My partner and I made a, we wrote a satire instead. Um, we had to prove like, like, uh, like it was a, like a customer service phone call. We had to prove like we could have a professional conversation. I'm like, dude, really? I mean, I'm not that dumb. So we wrote a satire between, um, a old lady with a hearing aid aid and an apathetic, um, worker at the U S postal service trying to have a, and, and it was about all, you know, we demonstrated our understanding through everything that could go wrong with turns on words. And, um, our teacher didn't preview it before she played the recording to the class. And um, we were sitting here like, oh, I can't wait. She played it and completely lost control of the class. I remember John Ballier fell out of his chair. He was laughing so hard. Everybody thought it was great. And she just looked at me and she was like, you out and pointed at the door. Like I didn't even. So in front of the whole class, I walked the plank, I left class and it landed in the principal's office again. I think they were relieved I was there for something other than throwing hands, right? So um, so I was, I was kind of an unconventional student. and. Um, you know, I I felt like there's so much that can be changed and there's so many things that we can do differently. Um, and so I wanted to be part of the solution. And, um, you know, I, I was raised in a, in a service oriented, social justice oriented household, but I was also raised with that, you know, don't don't bother complaining if you can't step in and be a part of the solution. You know, that's weak. And so, um, you know, taking a, a little bit of Greg Harden and, and a little bit of that first um, mentoring experience that that I was afforded through that program, and it it is evidence that like one random decision you make on a certain day to do something can put you in a uh, we call it reciprocal determinism in psychology, but can put you in a an environment or a situation where you're like, wow, okay, this is really good, and I like it, and then it 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 kind of changes the course and direction of, of your life. Um, and so you, if you, if you get too far inside your head with, with those decisions, they start, you can get yourself really twisted up. Um, but that's how I kind of landed at, at Pioneer. And then I had, um, job interviews, you know, I had, um, three job interviews and three job offers. So it was Alpina, um, Brighton and, and, and Pioneer. And I was like, oh man, my parents went here. I went here. Like, I can't work here. Like, that's just weird. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities in Alpena. Um, and um, I met my husband through athletics at, at Michigan, and I didn't really want to throw him under the bus. And so uh, we, we thought about it, but you know, whatever. And, uh, and then I went up to, to Brighton, and um, I got caught in, for the interview, I got caught in like raging construction. And I'm like, man, I just, I can't, I can't leave you know, an hour and 10 minutes before for a 20 minute every day. It, no, that's not going to work. Um, and so it was like this, if you, if, if ever you're looking for kind of like a sign and then, you know, I got there and everybody's really nice, but I really thought about, you know, I, part of the difference I want to make is an in diverse environment, you know, and this doesn't satisfy that objective. Part of what I want to change is social justice oriented and, and that this isn't the right match for me. So I, I came back to pioneer and, uh, I walked in the first day of work and go into the office to get my things, you know, and uh, Jeff Hilliard, uh, the community assistant, Jeff Hilliard looked at me and he was like, Jody Smith, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, dang, if the community assistants remember my name four years later, that is, I, 
wow, I must have been more of a handful than I realized. Um, and I started out as an English teacher and coach. Um, I, in 2004, the psychology teacher retired and I had an opportunity to start taking over the program. And um, we had like two psych classes at the time I was pregnant. Um, and I just, I just kept doing what I did, um, and, and built it into what it is now, which is, you know, something like, uh, 10 sections, three different courses, my fifth hour is at 37 kids, um, which is, you know, at, the, at this point, the more the merrier on some level, it makes for really good discussion, although a crushing grading load, but really good discussion. Um, and, uh, I, I would say that the one takeaway is like, um, I'm kind of a renegade with the way I do things. Um, I'm appreciative of our current principal support for that, although I've always had quite a bit um, because my teaching style is a direct response to the things that I've always wanted to change. And so having that autonomy and that freedom has been really meaningful. I think the thing that concerns me the most is that it's disappearing fast. Our autonomy, our freedom, our ability to do things um, thoughtfully in informed by a philosophy is, is being kind of um, obliterated, to be honest. Um, that's a hard thing. Yeah, well, um, building off of that, I've never had the pleasure of being in your class, and neither is James, but we've both heard things about um, your unique teaching style and how you can really get kids to open up and share deep and personal stories that you've really created kind of a safe space in your classroom and I was wondering how you get kids to kind of share such personal stories um, so that they can connect the psychological concepts with their own lives. I think um, I think it's really important to honor your your inner adult. Um, I think it's also important I mean I was um, part of my story in high school is uh, my dad was really sick and he was supposed to die my sophomore year. And um, that was really hard on my mom. I was an only child, um, like you, Heath. I was an only child. And um, that was really hard on my mom. She um, struggled, had had a lot of carryover from her own childhood. Um, and so I ended up, you know, taking care of my dad a lot in high school and, and emotionally supporting my mom and, and doing quite a bit for her. And um I remember being deeply angry a lot going to high school and having teachers treat me like a two-year-old is what it felt like to me, right? Treat me like, like, you know, and, uh, you know, and I would be looking at them like, I'm going through things that you haven't gone through yet. Like I'm doing more adult things when I go home than you are. And you're telling, you know, you're, you're what? And then there just wasn't a lot of, um, you know, flexibility or understanding or, or ways for me to kind of, uh, you know, work around things. So there were nights I spent at the hospital and came to school, you know, and um, I have, uh, you know, if, if a kid is going through something difficult, A, I think it's really important to honor their inner adult, but B, I think if that, if that student um, wants to do well, and they're committed to learning, doing well, and, and making themselves a, a better future, is the hill to die on that they get the paper in on the same day as everybody else. You know, if they're not bull, bull crapping, I don't know if I can swear, but if they're not bull crapping you and they're not taking advantage of the system and you, you know that they're being honest and, and sharing their truth, you know, um, I think 
you know, I watched a lot of people when I was in school just not have any honor or flexibility for that. And I watched, you know, my freshman year, or not my freshman year, my, my early career, I, I watched a lot of staff. Like, it's only fair to treat everybody the same. And I'm like, well, what's the end game there? Are we going to give this kid a chance um, to have a better future? Or are we going to get stuck over some stupid deadline, right? Um, are you going to make it a safe environment in your classroom for people to share your truth? Because I'm of the opinion that I'm important a little bit, but, you know, you might learn 40% of what you learn might be from me. 60% might be from the students in your class sharing their experiences. And I think those first person narratives are, are really powerful and really important. You know, when you create an environment where it's safe to share your truth, um, and people, you know, share their experiences of, of what it's like to wake up black every day and navigate the world or, um, you know, wake up and um, not have a socioeconomic background that allows you to uh, provide the things that, you know, other students have. It's, it's a lot easier to navigate online school if you have a really nice laptop, if you have an external monitor. Um, and, and so hearing it, um, from other students, I think sometimes creates and facilitates a lot of growth that wouldn't already always happen. But if those conversations and discussions aren't happening because you haven't created a safe space, um, then the learning isn't taking place, right? Every year when I start the school year, and it's been this has been the weird part of Zoom, you know, one of the things I do on the first day of class is I watch people's body language as they walk in. And you can tell immediately the students that have had bad experiences with middle-aged white women, you know, and I don't, I have a special job at that point. You know, I know that um, society is, is what society is. And I don't, I don't have a problem with the fact that I have extra work to do in that situation. Um, I think that that's actually a, a powerful moment. I remember one student, um, his name was, was Michael. I have this like demographic that this, uh, I'll, it's a, I call this student information form, so it's a pretty benign name, but you know, you you tell me about yourself in writing, so it's a little safer. And it was like I was, it was 2000, 99, 2000, because I was pregnant with my son. No, it was 2000, it's fall of 2000. And there's this big kid in the back, right? And his name was Michael, and I collected his form, and on it, his main goal in class was to get along with me. And I was like, wow, that's deep. Right. So I pulled him aside the next day and said, hey, tell me about this answer. And he looked at me he's like, you actually read that? And I'm like, yeah, man, that's kind of how I roll. And so he he talked a little bit and, it, you know, things went along and things went along and things went along. And, um, you know, he had some some demons that he was working on, anger management, throwing chairs. I mean, really, really working. on. so I was like, OK, here's what's up. Let's put together a plan. You, you get ready to pop somebody. You walk in my room. No questions asked. Here's a strategy. We went over that. They actually wanted to, um, you know, uh, and, and I have Michael's permission to share this story just so that we're clear on that, you know, FERPA, not violating FERPA. Um, but, um, you know, I ended up going to bat with him and uh, bat for him. Um, and he needed me to do that to, to stay a pioneer. And I didn't have tenure. I remember sitting in that meeting and sitting next to him and giving him a strategy and um he graduated and um and that was like a really he, he was waiting outside my classroom to thank me and that was like so powerful um michael had an unfortunate 
and completely unrelated health event. And um, he didn't make it. And um, I think the most deeply powerful moment of my career was when his fiance and his mom called me and said, you know, we want you to deliver Michael's eulogy. And uh, I, I had to, like, they waited to pull him off of life support until I could get there um, to say goodbye. And I, I remember before I went on maternity leave, um, Michael walked up to my you know, desk and he gave me this book and it was like the love you forever book. And he looked at me and he's like, he knew I was having a son. He was like, so um, I promise that I'm going I'm to I'm I'm keep it real while, while you're gone. Um, you're going to have a son. Um, I want you to know that, that he's going to screw up sometimes. He, he's really going to screw up and you're going to be mad. Love him no matter what. Make me that promise. You know, and, and he's, I think, you know, my son. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I there are moments of, of um like literally hearing Michael's words, like, I'm going to love this kid. I love him no matter what. Right. And, uh, I gave Michael, um, he, he wrote in my book and I went out and I bought that book and I wrote it in, I wrote in it. And I remember before I left the hospital, I set it on his chest and I asked his mom if, if they could please, you know, keep it with him while they, um, prepared, you know, either burial or, or whatnot. And, uh, and they did. And um, I think um, Michael, his story is, um, is a difference that a teacher can make. And if you really work with somebody, he went on and, and, you know, he, he made these contributions that were awesome, and he was productive. And if I had played by the rules, you know, what would the alternative path have been? And so I always look for the Michaels on the first day of class. And I think um, his story is very like, what's the end game? What is the end game with all of what we're doing? What is our job as a teacher? Is it to create productive people that can make a positive difference and support themselves? Or is it to get into a flutter about a few deadlines you know obviously we don't want to teach wanton irresponsibility and you can do whatever you want I'm not necessarily advocating for that but it always comes down to me like what's the end game what are we really here to do um and that that kind of shapes my philosophy yeah and you were talking about the body language and how you read kids as they walk into the classroom, but this year we started and instead of walking in, kids clicked a link to join a Zoom call, probably with their cameras off. So how has that whole experience been for you um, teaching this fall and trying to still get a connection with your students and teach them the way you did when we were in school? Um, just talk about your experience with teaching in COVID. So, yeah, I mean, not having that context was, was, was a bit odd um, for me, like being able to like see and, and what, and I think it was odd for everybody, but I, I'm one of those, like somebody says can't and I'm like, hold my water or whatever you want to say, like, like watch me. Like um, that's, yeah, yeah. That's like my college trainer in the weight room. All he had to say is I bet you can. And I'd be like, I'm gonna take this bench press and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shove it through, you know, like 
So um, I'm 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 all about like give me a challenge and uh, and tell me that this is impossible and I will I I'm I'm coming in hot I'm going to prove you wrong and that's kind of how I've approached this whole situation I think um, and I I don't know how you're doing in time with what what you guys have going on but like I think the goalposts have been dancing like you know dancing goalposts so the, my biggest frustration is like a lot of the people trying to figure out policy for all of this at the top level haven't taught with technology. They were, they don't, they're digital, they're, they're digital, they're not even, I don't even know if they are digital immigrants. I mean, they haven't even like made the transition fully themselves. And so those of us that have been a little bit more um, tech-based are like, you, that's not going to, like, what are you doing, man? Like, that's not going to work. And so there's been some of that um, going on, which is frustrating, like the design of, of what we're doing. And, I, and I, I'm probably critical too, because I have like that industrial and organizational behavior and psych background. So like making workplaces efficient is part of my academic work. So I'm going to be a harsher, I'm going to be a harder audience, right? That's just part of it. But um, so that's been frustrating. Um, we didn't have access to a lot of stuff that we were going to use. So I got a phone call on a, an email on Saturday to report to Zoom on Monday that I was training the staff with five other people on how to use technology a week before we were coming back. And so I was like, dude, there is nothing like that kind of Hail Mary pass, fourth quarter, 10 seconds left on the clock, and it's hailing. Like, bro, what? Was kind of my reaction, right? Three days into the training, they were like, oh, we got to shift gears. So the goalposts start moving, or, or like the end zone has been repainted and is over somewhere behind like the guest, you know, the guest bench of players. And I'm like, really, bro, what? So so that's been part of the frustration. And then, um, yeah, I'm getting up at three. I'm, I think my average workday is 13 hours plus maybe 10 to 15 on the weekend um, to make all of this work. And again, a lot of it is, is, is like the system, you know, and um, and so, yeah, uh, I've got my three monitors. It looks like flight control. I feel like I'm working with NASA at a flight simulator. Um, I can't sit still, so so that was a, a huge issue. I've actually got a, a standing desk that I have on my bike trainer so that I can try to ride and type or whatever at the same time um, without falling off. But um, so so that's been hard. I think what's really interesting, though, from a psych standpoint, and I noticed this right away last year, is that Pioneer is a really loud, crowded, chaotic place that benefits people who are what we call extroverts. As soon as we switched to online last year, the quiet, socially, somewhat socially anxious introverts that got a little bit like, wow, this is just too much on the daily, they came alive in a way I'd never seen, right? Like they were thriving in Google Classroom. They were participating in this. Kids that weren't turning in assignments or wouldn't raise their hand, all of a sudden they were participating, they were really interested, they were dialoguing in like the discussion areas. And I was like, wow. Okay, um, so what I've noticed is, um, like I'm doing a thing with my psych at the beginning of, like you have to, there's this whole presentation that, that each kid is giving for a few minutes so that I can get to know them and, and do a workaround for the body language thing and the, and, the, and the first days of school. And a lot of them are saying like, I, um, I had time to like self-reflect and, and figure some things out and, and really like, take time to think about where I wanted to go and what I enjoyed doing. And I, I've never had time to think before. And that was really 
kind of a necessary thing. I've had kids say like, um, I'm less stressed. I spent more time with my family. I'm getting enough sleep for the first time. I'm actually able to work my schedule a little bit around like what works for me. Um, I realized that I always thought that being alone was like this really bad, scary thing. I realized like, like there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. And that maybe being by yourself sometimes isn't the worst thing. Um, I've had kids say like, I'm way less anxious, like with a variety of ways that I can participate in class discussion. I've had kids say, I think the adults think that it's worse for us than it really is. Like they're, they're assuming that it's going to be like the worst thing ever. And, and I'm not, I, you know, like there's things I'd like to change and I'm definitely excited to be back at Pioneer, but like, it's not as bad as people are making it out to be. And then there are kids that are struggling, right? Um, and it, it's just, it's, it's interesting that um, there's this whole fairly significant demographic of kids that's actually doing re really well. And so I guess one of my reflections is it's really commentary on how we need to make school more inclusive. Um, can we use this to reflect and, and make positive changes? Um, because they, they have to be made. I mean, we've, we've, we've refused to change the education system for a really, um, really long time. And then there are kids that are like, I never realized how important like Pioneer was. I, I'm going to go back and I'm not going to complain about the things that I thought were, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be happy about some of the things that I didn't see while I was there. Um, so even for the kids that are having a hard time and would deeply prefer to be back at Pioneer, I think it's been, sometimes you don't realize what you have until you have that comparative reference point. And so I said, okay, well, don't forget that on day five, use that momentum. And when we do go back, let's see if we can make this like totally incredible. And that, the afterburner of that feeling will last, hopefully, a, a couple of graduating classes. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what it's going to be like when we get back, but I think it's just going to be people celebrating in the hallways, probably not hugging each other because of social distancing and everything, but I think it's going to be a really exciting time and a lot of students are going to have a ton of motivation um, just seeing each other again. And I'm really excited for the hopeful date um, that AAPS goes back and we can get back in the building. Oh, and like the, the senior walkout man is going to be like hype beyond hype. But I think that the cool thing is, is for the first time you feel like a responsibility to be part of that. And we've kind of gotten into this like slightly apathetic, negative, like expecting the teachers to make everything interesting for you. I mean, there was definitely that that thread, right? And now I think everybody's like, I have a role in this. You know, like I'm going to take ownership over this. I have a role in this. I'm going to help make that happen. I'm stoked to do that. Like bring it on. And, you know, really, really good things, magical things happen when teachers and staff and principals come together as a team um, to provide you with that experience. And so once we, you know, when we get everybody on the same page and, and shared hardship also brings groups together, right? Shared hardship or, or common, common goal, like you have on a team or a common, common enemy, um, brings people together in, in community that, that sometimes don't come together in community. And so we can, we can um, I think, really harness some of the unifying momentum of this too. 
to bring different groups in school together. And there might be this um, desire and effort to like weave those quiet kids in more with what you're doing when you get there. Like, hey man, I really want to hear what you say or somebody's having a bad day and sitting, you know, in the stairwell and you're like, yo dude, are you, you good, man? Like you sit down next to them and you have a conversation, like more of that, like uh, making sure that we see every single kid that rolls every single way at, at Pioneer. Um, I think that would be really powerful what I agree I think it's gonna be hype so I wanted to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier um, one potential benefit of online school which was that the introverts um, are able to thrive in this new uh, environment because it's a little bit less based on public speaking and class participation and all that stuff and it's a phenomenon that I hadn't really noticed was happening until you mentioned it and now it seems like it was right in front of my face the whole time um, so I find that really interesting and I appreciate how you laid it out from a psychological perspective, but it got me thinking, do you have any other advice, um, for a psychological approach that a student can take to online school? Um, just things that they can keep thinking about as they continue. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, on a, on a lot of different levels, um, just, you know, how, the introverts are doing well people are you know like I said they're a little bit more comfortable in in certain ways and I think we have this um productivity culture um where like if you're not doing something all the time you start to feel like agitated guilty like sitting down and staring at a wall or sitting under a tree or just kind of you know it's like I should be doing something I'm wasting my time I should be doing something I'm wasting my time and uh, we got to get away from that because burnout is real it's not healthy um, you don't really get clarity on what degree program you want to study if you're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I've got to go, got to go, got to go. And so um, it might help your generation also think about the boundaries you set at work. Like you're going to protect that family time. You're going to protect some time. Americans don't use all their vacation time. You have this fear that if you are given 10 days and you take 10 days early on in your work career, your boss is going to view you as not committed, as lazy, as you know, it's a badge of honor to talk about how many hours you didn't sleep and you had five cups of coffee where you're studying for your six AP classes, right? That's, that's not healthy. And so um, there's clarity sometimes that comes from really hard situations that allows you the momentum and the perspective to, to not only use it for Pioneer, um, but use it to make changes in the companies you work for and in the norms that you experience in the workplace. Well, I really appreciate um, kind of the positive spin and positive perspective that you're putting on um, online school here and kind of looking at it from a glass half full approach. And I think that's really unique um, amongst people at Pioneer right now. There's kind of an aura of negativity surrounding the effectiveness of online school that, well, I think it could be good for critical thinking, can also be really pervasive to students' motivation Um and has a lot of detriment to it. But I think some of that is the adults, right? Uh, I It's my responsibility to show you that that's possible. It's my responsibility to suck it up, right? If I'm doing nothing but convince myself that it's gonna be awful and it, it, it nothing is possible, uh, that that filters down to you. You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna feed off that energy, right? And so 
I think it's really important for the adults to take responsibility for some of the ways that you all are feeling right now. Um, Because if I'm going to teach that way, right, y'all are going to have a crappy experience. It's going to be awful. But no matter what I think, if I'm going to try to like win the game or I'm going to try to like, you know, we're, we're down two touchdowns. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and bitch and moan on the sidelines. I'm going to try to make something happen. So there's an acting job involved in it. I, I do hate sitting still this long. Um, but, you know, I'm also modeling for you how to, you have a choice. You don't always choose your adversity, but you have a choice how to handle it. And I'm going to make a choice that teaches you a, a lesson more powerful than any bloody thing you're going to learn academically in my course. You're going to learn that I made a choice to make it a certain kind of way for you. And that is the lesson. Perfect. Powerful ending. Couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. This is a really cool project. I'm, I'm, this is awesome. Thank you. Um, your positive perspective on everything going on right now has been really refreshing. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you for your time. All right. Take care, guys. This has been another episode of the TBD Podcast. My name is Heath Monsma. And I'm James Catanzaro. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.